Welcome to the Touching Into Presence podcast. This podcast is for people who are interested in body work, empowerment, and somatic-based practices. I am Nikki Olson. I'm Andrew Rosenstock. We are certified rolfers. Collectively, we're trained in various movement and bodywork therapies with an emphasis on somatic awareness and client resilience. Through conversations, our goal is to share and explore mind-body paradigms to offer empowerment possibilities. We are grateful to be in conversation with Michael Poland today. After almost 20 years of study, Michael still has the same beginner's excitement when it comes to exploring the art, science, theory, and practice of rolfing. Through consistent study and continuing education classes with rolfers, as well as with physical therapists, chiropractors, psychotherapists, and movement rehab experts, Michael learns more about what is possible with his work each year. His enthusiastic curiosity of how people and their bodies behave fuels his passion for understanding how anatomy, physiology, movement, posture, pain, inhaling potential all come together with this work. Michael's so easy to talk to, and each conversation I have leaves me both wanting more time with him and also more time on my own to digest the richness. So with that, let's begin our talk. Hi, Michael. <laughs> Hi, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> well, did or do. Or we could just go with it and explain yeah. why we're laughing. Yeah. Um, because we're fun people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've, we've been having fun for the past few minutes before yeah. this semi-official start. Yeah. Yeah. So, Michael, thank you so much for joining our podcast. It's been great to... Um, to know you. Uh, you were one of my first teachers back in, oh gosh, 2002. And then I've had the pleasure of being in the classroom with you, uh, teaching the basic phase one. And I would love to hear a little bit of your journey with how you got to maybe how you found Rolfing, found yourself teaching, and just kind of the journey you've been on for the past decade and a half. Sure. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, it feels sweet to hear uh, some of those nice words come from you after, uh, what's it, 18 years or so of, of knowing each other. Um, <clears throat> so let's see, I, I first entered this rolfing world as a client, um, and it would have been about 23 or so years ago. Um, and then while I was living in Boulder, uh, ironically, I lived across the street from the old Rolf Institute, and it wasn't until about five or six sessions into my original 10 series when I asked my practitioner, uh, like, where do you go to, to learn this stuff? And they said, oh, the you know, Rolf Institute's in town. And I said, oh, is it like a big green building on Second Canyon? Because I, I live across the street from it, and I always wondered what was going on with people walking around in their underwear up there. Um, so there I was a couple sessions later walking across the parking lot, going into the underwear building and getting an application. And I started in phase one way back in the summer of 98 and fast forward uh, 20 years or so went through, um, you know, it's been kids lifetimes since then and, and teaching uh, several different phases of the training. And, and here we are 
in the midst of the current time and who knows what the school landscape looks like and who knows what our private practice uh, landscapes will look like, but the work seems more exciting than ever to me. Absolutely. I can resonate from you being the physiology anatomy teacher when I first started training and then, you know, getting that foundation information and then so many years later being in the classroom with you and you're talking, teaching physiology. It was really cool to see kind of the, the different perspectives of what we were doing with the work. It definitely has evolved with the new, new pain science, touch science. It's not just the simple biology 101 anymore. Right. And I, and I guess from a practitioner standpoint, the work um, lives in whatever current state of evolution you have it. And uh, for me as a student of the work, um, I, I've always been excited to learn more, uh, even when it's uncomfortable. And uh, I, I could probably say that when I graduated the training, I, I was maybe one of those people who thought he knew it all. Uh, and there was very little left for me to learn coming out of phase three. I was um, thought I had this thing figured out. And then the more I practiced in those first couple of years, the the bigger and scarier the field of of knowledge that surrounds uh, SI seemed. And it was like, wow, I'll never know anywhere close to enough of this. So I, I pursued my first few passions in it, which were heavy in the biomechanic world, and then uh, studied visceral work quite a bit, started looking at the, the neuroscience uh, of the sort of psychobiological taxonomy or, or something to that effect. Uh, and that left me at about year 10 in my practice thinking like, whoa, this is a way bigger topic than a 10 series or a 12 series, any structure of knowledge would um, would serve me. And it was about 10 or so years ago where I really broke out of the classic Rolfing or SI field to start looking into what would be my next thing of excitement. I'm curious what your definition would be classic. I, I know like um, one of our earlier episodes, we had a conversation with Jan Sultan and one of my things that I've always felt is rolfing doesn't have to be painful, even though that's a reputation that we have. And uh, my, one of my first practices was in Aspen, Colorado. And I put in, this is back when you advertise in newspapers and I put an ad in the newspaper and it says, said rolfing doesn't have to be painful. And I got so many phone calls and they're like, wait a minute. I want to, I want, I've wanted to receive rolfing, but I just never wanted to experience that pain. And so, I mean, that, that opened up a great practice for me. And then being in Boulder, coming back after, you know, a practice in New York, and then now here in Boulder, being where the Rolf Institute started, you feel like there would be a ton of people who really understand what rolfing is. And I st why I brought up this conversation up with Jan again was I was running into people who are like, whoa, I don't want to experience Rolfing, it's painful. Or I don't want to experience Rolfing because I don't want to have a mental breakdown. I don't want to start crying. And I'm like, wait a minute, there's a whole lot of experiences in between that. So I'm curious of what your, what your idea of a classic 
identification of Rolfiness because I think there's so many interpretations out there, which is a good thing. And then also kind of a bad thing for the lack of clarity. Yeah. I think if the question is what's my take on what classic SI is, um, that boy, it feels like a hard thing to answer. Um, the thing that seems the most common to me across different practitioners I, I either study with or having classes or t- uh, chat with would be a, um, a framework in which the, the, the work is delivered in a, um, I'm going to change your body type of format. And whatever that looks like in whatever sequence, whatever techniques, whatever level of pressure, um, that, that me change you idea, that's what I'm kind of referring to when I talk about that classic ideology. Um, the things I've been excited about and, and passionate to study in the past 10 years or so are all very much opposite of that. And my experience has been many folks will um, talk about how, you know, they never work on people, they work with people. Uh, And then a few moments later, they talk about how they're working on a thing. This, this hamstring, this tendon, this, this other thing. Um, So that's my idea of what classic work looks like uh, working on as opposed to, to working with and school aside or whichever decade or whichever teacher uh, aside, it's, it's what's the target of the work? Is the target a tissue? Is the target a capacity? Is the target an experience? Or is the target unknown, but just this willingness to co-journey with someone and to see what happens next? Um, so I get more interested in the, the latter part of that list than, uh, you know, fooling myself into thinking that I'm touching one specific tissue and I can measure, you know, millimeters amount of change through lots of different layers. So can you talk a little bit about cultivating a code journey? I really like <clears throat> how you describe that because I feel like that is a big part of, of what we're doing, but often our clients aren't necessarily seeking a co-journey. They're coming because they're, they're in pain or they heard that rolfing helps release trauma or, 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 they're, they, or, they're, or they're coming because they don't necessarily want to do the work. They want someone to do the work for them. Sure. I agree with all of those. And, and my, my practice, uh, probably for the most part reflects those, those three interests uh, by and large um, and, and maybe some others that are related. What I think is helpful and, and maybe even essential with any positive relational experience, whether it's a, a date or a classroom or the therapeutic context is to have really clear expectations and actually to be able to connect over those expectations. So the, the biggest problems in, in my clinical world come about when we're a session or two or three down the line, and there's been this like unspoken expectation that I'm supposed to be the person who fixes someone, and I'm trying to do something else 
and and my clients expecting one thing and I'm expecting something else and there's never any connection over it. So regardless of where I put my elbow and which direction I push and whether I do a, a upper session first or a lower session next, uh, it's almost like how have we connected over what is the context of what we're doing? What are we going to do? How are we going to do it? Why are we going to do it like that? And making negotiations and agreements around how do we get our clients' goals met? So I, you know, I, in some ways, I care less about what we do and more about how and why we're doing it. So if clients are coming in with, um, oh, you know, Michael, I want you to fix this thing. Um, my excitement goes into why? Like what's, what's on the other end? If we get it quote unquote fixed, what, what does that afford you? What, what, what would you do differently? What capacity are you looking for? So that's the bigger question I have. Uh, for years, I probably would have jumped right into the rabbit hole of, ooh, yay, I get to fix this thing. Uh, I learned in this one class that thing's always broken if it's something else on the other side of the body or it's on the some diagonal relationship or, or something. Um, so more, I, more and more these days, I'm much more into uh, unpacking what people's experiences of their bodies are. And why they're coming to me is, is critical. So uh, critical to unearth, right? We want to make clear negotiations and agreements around that. Uh, and there have definitely been uh, times, not too many, but there have been times where people are saying, no, I just want you to take the reins. I want you to fix it. I don't want to do any of the work. I don't want to talk. I don't want to move. I just want you to do it. And I've said, I might not be the right person. This might not be the right fit. Um, so that's the important piece, I think, is making sure the expectations are clear and that there is equal engagement from, from both sides. I think uh, if you haven't already, developing a class for that for, for SI and beyond would be great because I'm, I'm listening from my own experience and being like, oh, that's where I've gravitated towards, but I don't have necessarily the the experience or the, the nuance on, on how to do that. And so what I find is sometimes I get people and I, I can get that. And other times they're like, no, just, you just do the work. And because I, I, I'm still sort of struggling with that. So I'll put a plant that seed for later for like, if you don't already have a class for that, because I, yeah, I see so much value in that. Um, and it's funny when, when you came and you taught the one day for us, what I remember I wasn't ready to hear it at the time, uh, probably because it was phase one and I didn't really know what rolfing really was. And I had other previous belief systems, but I, I left your class being like, maybe is the answer for, for everything and being really upset with that because I was looking for answers. And then flash forward, you know, a year or two later, being like talking to people and being like, yeah, maybe because I, I had more of that experience. So I'm very grateful to you after the fact. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, but I, I do think that's really, it's really important for the work because we then start to do a lot of this explaining or telling what is, but is it? Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, so to address the first point, the seed for the class planted and was actually in, in bloom uh, until we had to cancel it for COVID stuff. So uh, ultimately, I hope that in-person classes can be something we all feel good and comfortable about 
participating in again. Uh, I thought I would say, hey, let's do it in August or September. Here we are almost middle of July, and that seems like probably not ready for that yet. At some point, it'll happen. And the idea is um, really about how do we cultivate ourselves as practitioners so we feel well-equipped with whether it's the, the conversational tools or the, uh, you know, the, the bandwidth to handle clients who challenge us. Um, you know, right off the bat, when I, when I heard you say, Andrew, like, uh, oh, I didn't really like that maybe. I hear that from a lot of students. I'll hear that from practitioners who've been working for a long time who, who I work with either in a mentoring uh, setup or just chatting with. Uh, and it's like, what, why is maybe a challenge for us to begin with? And you know, if we could address that pattern, what happens to us as practitioners when we don't know? And if we can yeah. put some space and time around, you know, watching our reflexes, well, if I don't know, let me make some, something up. Let me just push a little harder. Uh, let me do anything I can to not have to admit that I don't know. Uh, you, you can spend your entire hour with someone doing that. And if it's, if, it, if we can be humble enough to say, well, you know, client, um, I don't know, but you want to go on a little bit of an experiment and see where we end up in five or six minutes and see if we're any closer to getting what you want out of this. You know, it's really easy uh, to navigate that with, with this sort of um, re realness that I, I don't know, maybe even like, wh what's it like for you to hear me say, I don't know. I, yeah. In my world, that that builds trust more than a falsified, well, you know, if your big toe is this way, your knee goes that way, and by the time you get to your cranium, it's all this way, and that's why you have a headache. Um, doesn't sound all that confident. Well, I think with, I mean, especially with, <coughs> with I can speak to rolfing because that's the school I went to, but, I, I would, I, but with being in a lot of different bodywork classrooms, Traditionally, I think a lot of it is like learning the anatomy so you can see what isn't working. So you do go into this fix-it mode and there is kind of more of this biomechanical viewpoint lens of like how do we help remedy somebody's body. But as we all, and it's talked a little bit about in the training, you see it in like a lot of different modalities. I mean, I've been in tons of fitness and body work. The conversation of the stories that are holding your body. And I think for sure we're not psychotherapists, but I think the trainings a lot, I think all these trainings could serve a little bit more opportunity to learn about how to navigate people into their self inquiry. So they do start to recognizing, like, oh, this pain, this nagging pain yeah, I got fixed in my shoulder, but now that's fixed. And now I have another pain and how their, their kind of disassociation with their body is by finding what hurts and not always finding what feels good or noticing what isn't working their life rather than to having gratitude for what does work in their life. And I think, you know, that in, in kind of the work touching into the tissue and having that containment, that therapeutic framework, that, you know, Rolfing SI can provide, we start to develop a little bit of that conversation, co-journey that you're explaining. 
but it does kind of divert to, you know, what maybe people were originally drawn to rolfing was, yeah, I'm going to come in and be able to lean heavy into tissue and fix them and take them into this. I mean, I saw it, I'm sure you saw a ton too, Michael, in the training of people kind of like got off a little bit of like, I'm going to be the heavy handed practitioner and I'm really going to create change because I know how to lean into the tissue, which is, you know, people with diverse bodywork skills, like versatile work, you make great changes and you're not power lifting tissue. <laughs> it's, it's subtle, subtle work. Yeah. And so all of this, again, comes back to in, in my world of, of how I make sense of all this, like um, for the practitioner to be really clear about what they want out of their work. Um, you know, that, that pattern of student that you're describing there, Nikki, the, the, they come in with that, like that preconceived idea of I'm going to be doing this work this way. This is the way the work needs to get done. This is how my clients want it. Uh, if they don't want it this way, either, you know, tough shit or you're just not going to be my client. Um, you know, there's, there's a little bit of harshness or a lot of harshness and all of those. And, and they're all, they're all limiting, right? That, that mindset limits practitioners. It limits clients and it, it limits what's possible between the two. Um, so if some awareness is brought to that idea in the beginning that uh, this is how I have to practice, this is how I want to practice at least if we know that that's what you're up to, there are ways to work that a little with a little more savvy. Um, if, so Michael, if how do you, how would you describe? <laughs> so if you had this, this person who came into your practice that is open and willing to whatever you prescribe, what, how would you define it? Of what, what, what you would do or what the uh, journey would be? If they're open and willing to, Anything? Pretty much. Like there's no. no agenda. Yeah, they have a little bit of shoulder discomfort or something's brought them in. Mm -hmm. But they're not totally attached to an idea of what they've heard rolfing would be. Mm -hmm. What would you, your be your kind of your introductory? Cool. So, um, well, one thing I would want to get at some point um, would be... How, how will we know if this is successful for you? Like, what, what is our criteria for determining that we've, we're on target? And if, if people are really that open-ended, you know, they say, I don't know, uh, you tell me. Uh, I would say, like, well, what, what was the impulse to come for help? You know, what, what, what can I do to support you? I mean, if somebody's really that open, I, I usually, I, I can't think of anybody who's been that unattached from anything happening. You know, people usually, we, we charge a, a pretty penny typically as, as, a, as a field. Uh, so people are usually motivated for something. But if, if I really couldn't find a, a motivation, uh, I might take a couple of guesses, uh, you know, maybe through like a fairly traditional assessment and say, well, it seems to me like uh, this part of your body runs, runs a little heavier than somewhere else. Is that what it's like for you? Right. seems like this part of your, your walk or, or the way you sit or stand or, you know, something pretty classic in terms of assessments. Uh, 
seems like this thing does a little bit of that. I don't even care about being right. It's just almost just like, let's just start a conversation. Uh, is that what it's like for you? How do you notice that show up when you do your thing of chasing your kids around or swinging kettlebells or fly fishing or dancing or whatever you do? Uh, it's just a launching point to get someone's experience of what it's like to be them. You know, the, the two biggest questions I have when working with people is, you know, how can I help you? Right. This like what what would what would be successful? What would make our work successful? Uh, and then the other is, what is it like to live in your body? I find the first one puts us on a target, and the second one unpacks and, and invites us along this co-journeyed event where the process and maybe even the sequence of the work is less bound to a protocol. So that's what I've, I've worked hard in, in my own practice. I've made tons of mistakes along the way. I'm sure I've done this very inefficiently. Um, they're, they're not mistakes. They, they've, they've brought you to where you are. Well, yeah, that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, un, uncoupling what I can get in the moment, my, my level of presence, my interaction, my curiosity from a formula hmm. has been, I think, the biggest gift that my studies have afforded me. So I really like that. And I'm, I'm actually, I'm kind of worried now because I'm, I'm worried afterwards I'm going to sound like the biggest kiss ass. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's, just, it's just that I'm in a very similar place where I am. And what I'm sort of curious about is, because I've moved into much more, less about hands-on and more about building self-inquiry through other through other somatic or meditative practices. But I, because of that, I can't get my sessions to an hour. Like if I'm lucky 75 minutes, but because so much of my sessions are about trying to help that person feel or become aware of all that stuff. I don't know if you have any, any similar thoughts on that, or if you're just, uh, I don't, yeah. Well, the, the first thing that gets my attention is, um, what is it about an hour that is necessary to, to target, you know? Well, yeah. Just because it was at one point it was taught by the, like that was one of the things is you should be doing these sessions in an hour. And so just more, mm. more because of that. Uh, I had imagined Rolfers, SI practitioners, uh, this sort of somatic exploratory practitioner type of, of uh, this, this type of field. Uh, hovers anywhere from 50 to maybe even 120 minutes in terms of session. Uh, as long as the expectation is clear on the front end, I don't think anywhere in the 60 to 90 minute range seems outland. I mean, that sounds totally fine. Um, there does seem to be a point of diminishing return for, mm -hmm. people's, for people's nervous systems to keep learning. Sometimes that happens at 40 minutes. And then you just need to fill the time to you know make them think that they got their whole hour of of support, but you could really see that the apex of the session happened and and adding any more is just overflow sometimes right. that sometimes people are you know so spongy they can just soak up more and more and more and more and I have clients who I do two hour sessions with, and that's they're with it the whole time. Mm -hmm. 
So um, that's the curiosity I have. It's like, why, why only 60? Is it yeah. convenient? So, you know? so, so it's more or less, actually, I'll dive a little deeper. Just what my belief is, it's because I was taught by the end, we should be doing this in 60. And it becomes out of my own insecurity, basically. Of, well, I'm taking this time. I'm therefore not good enough, according to this. And what I'm hearing from you is like, no, you're doing you're doing what you're doing that you don't actually need to have it in that. And like, just like that, swaha, it's, it's all good. You know, I would say if anything, I prefer having 75 over 60 minutes and, and uh, especially if you're going to do this somatic inquiry stuff, uh, a lot of that is slow. You know, it's, it's almost like, um, kind of have to wait for, for potency and clarity to build and rushing that into this sort of convenience of the clock almost seems more like a foul than, than running over. Obviously we're all bound to some kind of timeframes for agreements and schedule flow and all that stuff. But um, I, I like having the time, the, the, the processes I'm after are slower so, and I, and I love that you own the insecurity uh, around, well, I feel like I'm bad at this or something if I can't get it all done in X amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my therapy's done for the day. I'll send you a check <laughs> later on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so, Michael, I would like to dive in a little bit more of how, again, in your session. So, if you're kind of challenging the classic paradigm a little bit of what classic rolfing can be. What are your sessions looking like if you're holding into this question? So maybe a little less 10 series driven and a little bit of like, what is it like to be in your body? So you're clearly, I'm guessing this is, you're still holding a touch session. It's not talk therapy. For sure. Yeah. And, and I don't necessarily think uh, of it as like a challenge of, of anything. It's more like a, um, it's just my interest lays outside of the uh, the what to do and where to do it uh, and more in the why would I do this versus doing something else. And I really can't answer those questions for myself. That's like a, a, a participatory process that I need to know what's happening in my client. It's going to change day to day. Same, same person changes, you know, one week to the next or, or um sometimes beginning of the session to end of the session. So if I'm interacting with an ecosystem, I think the, the biggest lesson I've learned uh, is that they have a much better sense of what's happening from within the ecosystem than I do from outside of it. So my sessions might look very similar to something I saw demonstrated when I was in phase two or phase three or, you know, a pretty standard um, standard procedure, but the way I'm interacting is very different of, over the last few years than it was the first 15 or so. Again, it's, it's all coming from that idea of that I'm not working on these structures. Uh, in fact, they're not the target of what my, my work is in my head. Uh, the anatomy, the layers, the, the, the terrain of the session or the series or whatever, that's just an access point to my client's experience. And I can access it with touch. Usually that's what they're expecting. Uh, I can access with movement. 
with breath, their internal awareness. These are all sort of um, different arenas that the experience of being themselves play out on. So touch science comes, there's a little side shot, there's a little detour into touch science here that I think is really fascinating. Uh, it borders on the potential of being a little dorky, but it's pretty cool to reveal. It's been cool for me. To we like dorkiness. Dorkiness is us, so it's cool. Sweet. So when I, uh, when I was trained, what I heard and what I understood was that our, our elbows and, and knuckles and hands and fingers were uh, either differentiating layers, like actually creating a, a separation where there was something adhered, we're like replacing something that was like too lateral, we're moving it now so it's more medial. Uh, it was shrunken or somehow coiled on itself and we're like lengthening it like a, like a telescoping tube or an accordion opening or something like that. <clears throat> that the target of the tissue was anatomical change. The more research I've done from outside of the world of SI, uh, and it was a slow and painful process, the, the years of that have led me and my confidence more in the fact that what we're changing is uh, the physiology as opposed to the anatomy. So we're changing how sensitive things are. We're changing how well mapped things are. We're changing whether the, the tone is reflexively being driven high with you know, high tonicity and muscle contraction, or if we're calming some of that down. And any of those have the potential to create an immediate change in how our body feels in the moment. So we might feel uh, pretty constricted somewhere. And all of a sudden we see a pop into lift. Like, did we actually lift stuff? Probably not. Maybe. I don't know. What I'm more interested in is how did our touch or our guidance with movement or this sort of directional imagery, uh, how did we change someone's experience of themselves? That change can happen immediately. And it, it explains why movement work works so well. So without changing any anatomy at all, we can make you know, significant change on how things feel as opposed to how things actually are. So that takes me in my strategizing of the work away from like, I wanna change their stuff, which is kind of how I was you know, working when I, when I graduated, to I wanna help them assemble new awareness and potentially even meaning of the data their body's giving them that shows up as a lived experience. And that, that has so much more of my excitement these days than trying to, you know, reconcile the ideas that am I on this tissue? Can I really change it? What else is happening? Does that, what I feel change with, uh, explain what they feel? And this is lots of gray area there. So are, are you, I'm going to paraphrase and correct me if I, if I misinterpret, these are all ways of building awareness in the client various, via various methods, whether it's movement, whether it's touch. I mean, even if we're going deep or not, we're still touching and we're theoretically bringing sensory awareness into the body, which may or may not have been as aware there. So you're, you're seeing these all as tools for creating greater awareness in your client. Is that more or less... Yeah, I think you're right on there. And I also think it would be helpful to specify what levels of awareness. So um, 
one way to look at this would be kind of an unconscious mm-hmm. element where it's really about chemical excitability. Um, another one would be this sort of partial awareness, you know, this phenomenon of like, uh, pay attention to the way your shirt is touching your back skin. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like we, we weren't paying attention to it, but we can if we choose to. And then there's a, a super conscious awareness that we have pretty, you know, readily have accessible to our experience of, um, you know, thinking and ideas and emotions and, and things like that. So I think touch, if we just stay in that genre instead of the movement and the mm-hmm. other stuff, uh, touch affects unconscious reactions and, and chemical excitability touch changes our partial levels this um, partially discriminant part of our awareness and our ideas of whether it's expectations or touch or thank you andrew for your elbow in my piriformis that's what i needed and you know that has the tremendous potential to change whether something hurts or how a leg swings or how you know gravity is flowing through left side versus right side or I have a related question, but it might not seem related, and you don't have to answer this, uh, so don't feel like you're on the spot. Do you have a meditation practice? I do. Okay. Do you find that that actually helps what you're talking about, or no relation, or unsure? Uh, I am, you mean, uh, helps which piece? Let me make sure I get it right first. Whichever piece you feel it helps or it doesn't help. I mean, I think... I'm thinking more about just awareness as a whole, whether the three that you mentioned or other, more or less that is how I'm, how my mind is picturing it, but my mind is limited as well. So maybe there's another way that you see it as. So let me try this and we'll see if this gets in the, the ballpark of your question. What I, what I believe our work to be is a bit of an intersubjective meditation. And I know that's a lot of fancy syllables there, but what I mean by that is, uh, the, at least the way it, it gets implemented in my office, is that I'm on my own trip with what I'm experiencing and what I'm listening to and what I'm tracking in my client and what I'm tracking in myself. My client's on their trip. They're, they're hopefully tracking this. They're not checked out. It's important for me to keep everybody present and whether that's quiet or verbal, doesn't matter, but at least present. Um, and then it's like our two meditative systems are, are, are relating somehow. And I, I don't know if it's a new idea uh, for people, but I certainly spoke to a lot of old time practitioners who talk about how modulating their own nervous system creates oftentimes immediate and profound change. Uh, you know, the touch doesn't change the vector, the pressure, none of that changes, but just detuning or expanding or you know, this idea of feeling your backspace or, or things like that. Um, altering the practitioner's locus of attention changes the, the other system to which it's relating. Yeah. So in, in that respect, uh, meditation seems like a good exercise for practitioners to be able to make room for all of these different layers of information. Nice. So I don't know, does that answer or get close? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't, I had my own experience and I, was in, I wasn't necessarily looking for validation of my own experience. I was looking for more other, other input and what you were saying made so much sense in my mind. And so 
just more of having hearing hearing your input it makes sense and when sort of what you talk about uh, whether backspace i remember in my and and you know in biodynamic cranial a lot of the times though your touch doesn't change but the teacher may say like what's your what you're focusing on you know grow the room can you see across the street can you make the uh, and i had in rolfing with ray ray would have us a lot of times do these exercises where we would go to the horizon right and interestingly even though the touch didn't change the pressure stayed the same the client's response changed so the the most important part and most exciting part for me in that phenomenon, which I experience regularly, um, is not so much that it changes. It's if the client has an experience of it changing. Because I've, I've definitely sat on my side of, you know, a couple decades worth of things that I am fascinated by mm-hmm. that my clients don't notice at all. So then yeah. I start to wonder like, all right, am I deluding myself? Am I making this up because I want to feel like it's working? Um, you know, am I somehow masking what, what is or isn't happening based on my projected need to be successful or, or competent or whatever? To me, where the rubber meets the road, the biggest value of the work is when the practitioner and the client can connect over a shared experience of something happened. Hmm. It doesn't have to be the same thing that happened. Right. right? Yeah. I can say, like, oh, you're, you're seemed to me like this part of your body let go. And they're like, no, it's a different part, but something totally changed. Uh, that's a, that's to me, integration. Hmm. It's a system that's going through some kind of change. When it gets witnessed by the other, that seems to to lay down a different neural structure and and leave an accessible pattern behind, as opposed to your client tripping out on the table about, oh, this thing happened and that changed, and they never really get any validation. They don't share that experience. It's it's not known. Yeah. It it seems like it could slip away a little easier. It can't. Yeah. I mean, it's funny you, when you're saying that I laugh cause I'm, I'm home, I'm stuck in my parents' house because of Corona. So I work with my dad and my dad is the best dad. I love my dad. He has zero body awareness whatsoever. And I'll, I would work with him and I might do traditional SI or I'll do cranial. And when I'm doing sort of biodynamic, he has zero awareness and I sense what I sense, but I never tell him, but I might say, what are you, what are you aware of? And it's like nothing, nothing, nothing. Uh, and then when he gets off the table, he walks so much better. But he hasn't put that, he's sort of aware of it, but he doesn't have that sense. So I never want to lead him into like, oh, this just shifted. But there is a, so there's a communication happening of some sort, but maybe the language isn't exactly in, in tune. So I might be speaking Chinese and, and he just doesn't understand Chinese. So there's something not happening. Or, or you that. Or that it shows up later, right? Like the value is less about being able to articulate it and or sense it and articulate it as it's happening. But when he gets up and walks, right, things are are different. Mm -hmm. So maybe, uh, maybe a goal is not to instill the awareness as it's happening. Maybe maybe that doesn't need to be as important. Mm. You know, I notice I get hooked by that with my clients. Like I have this story in my head that, oh no, yeah. I need, I really think it's a good idea for them to be precisely body aware moment to moment. And I don't know if that's true. 
yeah. all the time. Yeah. I was listening to a podcast with Robert Schleich that we all know is one of the pioneers in fascia research. And it was refreshing to hear from him that, you know, who's chased all these different ideas of this is what we're, this is what's happening with the tissue and being like, Oh, actually, Nope. That research has proven it only happens a little bit. And that really kind of my takeaway from what I'm listening to it is the likelihood of what's happening to the tissue and kind of touching back to the conversation that we're having with the touch science is it's probably a little bit of everything. Excitability of the nervous system, the bringing on proprioceptive awareness, the various chemical changes that happen within the tissue, the, the cellular changes. And, you know, for someone who, you know, him being an original rolfer, knowing, knowing the work really well, to kind of let it go a little as much as he's fascinated of what's happening, but also being like, change is happening within the client. So it's going to be really cool once we find out what actually happens. But that's still, we're a couple of years away from that. Increasingly, we're getting closer with, you know, technology being able to be in higher resolution of micro, micro things that go underneath your skin. There's all kinds of ultrasound imaging <laughs> totally. yeah, available now. Yeah. Yeah, that's, it's pretty neat. So you know, the advances with the technology, we're going to learn a little bit more. But at the same time, kind of, I feel like what you're sharing is that we can be a little less attached to what is actually physiologically happening and more to the evolutional growth that's happening within the being. Yeah, and I, and I love the idea of of not knowing. It's not easy for for a lot of people. It's not easy for me. Um, but the the not in the not knowing, I think there's an opportunity there to orient more towards our clients' goals, which are these like what are the what's the lived experience of what it's like to be you, and what are you hoping I can help you with. I couldn't agree um, more. And and who cares if the fascia changes or not? You know, who cares if posture changes? What if posture gets worse, but people have like much better lives, you know, having having seen you and gone through your series of work or whatever. Um, so when I teach physiology, I, I like to outline, you know, maybe 10 or 12 different ways in which the therapeutic exchange of touch and movement awareness type of interventions could create change in someone's lived experience of themselves. And only one or two of them have to do with actually changing the fabric of the fascia, um, which leaves, you know, maybe eight, nine other feedback loops that have pretty powerful and immediate potential impacts on how it's like to swing your shoulder or letting yourself trust your foot underneath you or why something hurts and then it doesn't. Um, so the, the need to know feels less to me like a need to know, but less of a need uh, and more of a curiosity as to what other things are happening. You know, there are way smarter people than me trying to figure out what the fascia is doing. What I'm really interested in is like, what is the lived experience of the person doing as soon as we make contact and as soon as they come into our room, right? Like what's it like to be in this studio space, right? What's it like to be seen in some less clothing? Uh, you know, there's all kinds of really important feedback loops that would be, you know, calmed down or excited, whether it's proprioception, whether it's 
sensitivity, whether it's, you know, muscle bracing or any, any kind of stuff like that. So the fascia is just one part of, of our work and, you know, more and more I'm, I'm thinking it's a smaller part of the work. Um, whenever I look at and, and study the new stuff that's coming out from either the research congresses or the, um, this, you know, a lot of the output, whether it's videos or articles or whatever, um, the fascia almost never gets talked about without the nervous system also. And I don't know why those are always introduced together. They, they're, there's, they seem to be different systems. Um, you know, the, the fascia is where a lot of the nervous system is, but if you study uh, how touch changes neurons, uh, it's really pretty fast. It's like the fascia doesn't have to change at all. And you'd still have all of these, you know, crazy impactful processes happening. Um, but that's not, it's not even all that interesting to me anymore about like what's actually changing. What I'm more interested in is building, whether it's conversational skill or the relational capacity to like, I want to be closer in touch with what the lived experience is. And I, I don't want to bind that to, oh, it has to be because of the fascia change, or it has to be because of this neurotransmitters doing something different. Like it it doesn't seem to add too much to my sessions to really study that stuff. I like it. It's fun, but I'm also seeing it's, it's not as therapeutically valuable for me. It's dorky and it's like a guilty pleasure. It's a vice of mine. Um, But really what I like doing is building bridges to the, the unfoldment of people's experiences while they're happening. Yeah. And that, that to me is integration. Yeah. It's, it's interesting just because uh, my other, one of my other hats I wear is a yoga therapist and a, a lot of yoga, forget the physical aspects of it. The yoga is about being with the moment as it is. It's a, it's a being in a non-dual state of awareness, which is sort of sounds in some ways more or less what you are speaking about. Um, we can have all this information uh, that tells you something, but what does that actually really tell you about what's happening right now in you and this person? And uh, for me, it's a constant struggle of trying to get that information. Say, okay, this is one plus one equals two. Okay, I have my Cartesian logic here. Great. Um, but then working with a client where they are different, maybe. Uh, and not bringing my expectations in and letting their experience lead the way. And it's, um, I mean, I'm newer at this than you, uh, but it's, it's a struggle that I, I love. Uh, and I love, I love catching myself um, uh, in the middle and being like, back up, back up, ego aside. Um, but yeah, I hear, I hear a similarity to that non-dual way of, of approaching it. Yeah, well, um, newer than me or, or not, I, I think if I got the math right, um, I, I wish I had the bird's eye view of this whole thing like you do when I was three or four years into my practice. So, um, I mean, it sounds like you really got a lot of um, perspective over a few different important things that are unfolding at the same time whenever you work with someone in a yoga context and a bodywork context, heavy-handed, light touch, all uh biodynamic stuff. Um you know the a, a lot of times I like to use this metaphor of 
of what excites me about how to bring this understanding and how to get this more clearly out there with, with the community is to use the metaphor of, uh, of kissing. And, and I know it, it, it's, um, it's obviously a very different realm of two, two humans coming together, right? It's got this whole intimate and you know, potentially romantic aspect, but it's, it's such a rich playground to, to explore. I remember first being set off on this path of, um, in thinking about kissing uh, in my advanced training, I think this is back in like maybe 03 or 04 with uh, Jeff Maitland, somebody asked him, like, how do you know when the, the, the technique, the thing, the release, whatever it is, how do you know when that's done? And he said, well, how do you know when you're done kissing? And we all got it, right? There was like all 16 of us were like, oh, we get that. Uh, and it stayed in my head as something that I, I wanted to explore more. And it was recently where I um, was listening to a, someone who I like to study from uh, with a podcast thingy. And you know, he talked about four ways of like looking at an experience of like kissing. Um, and, and I think this has a lot of overlap to what it's like to receive body work. It's intimate in a different way. Um, you know, we can explain the math, right? You mentioned Cartesian. It's like we, we can explain the, the logic and the X and Y, and we could draw out and plot out the geometry of what, what happens when people kiss. Uh, and then we could talk about the sort of style in which people use to kiss. And then we could talk about what it's like to kiss or be kissed. And then you could actually talk about what it's like to kiss someone else in this moment and discuss that together. And those are all four very different levels of experience, right? The, the, the what, the how, the what it's like, and the relational piece. And the thing that I was really hoping to bring to this, this weekend retreat slash workshop thingy that we had to cancel was how do we get clear on those different ways of orienting to an experience? You know, you put your elbow here and you push this way for that long. Well, you do it in this kind of vector and you set up your body this way. And now you want to ask them what it's like. And now you want to ask them what it's like, but also what's it like for you? What's happening as the practitioner? And are you feeling insecure? So I'm pushing harder to really make sure they feel it. Am I uncertain if I'm in the right place? So I keep jumping around. Uh, am I thinking five moves ahead because I was told to always have a plan, right? So that's the part when I do mentoring and supervision, when I talk to other practitioners, it's like, what's the relational part that's emerging between the two systems? Back to that intersubjectivity of the work. And um, not that the sessions are ever about the practitioner's experience. That, that I don't think should ever be primary. But... I, I notice my experience is that I'm impacted by the work that happens. And when I ignore the impact, I, I also fraction off my awareness. So in order to be as fully present as I can to keep my ability to track all of these different levels of info open, uh, it means I show up a little differently too. I'm willing to not know. I'm willing to let my client's experience lead the way a little more uh, and I'm, I'm willing to not 
have everything resolve in a session. Maybe we get to 75 minutes and it's not, it's not perfect. Hmm. You know, I'm really trusting all these things. Like you said, oh, they're not mistakes. They just stepping stones on the path. Yeah. So I just, realized I covered a lot of bases there, but hopefully no, no, it's, good. it's, it's great. My, I have a question, which is just that when, when this week, this workshop ends up happening, there is or there isn't going to be a kissing booth. I'm just trying to figure that out. Uh, there will very much not be that <laughs> okay. un- unless it's after hours and <laughs> with, with consent, you know, which yeah, th- that's what kind of got me into thinking why, um, why this stuff feels so important to me. Uh, it, it does from at least the way I see it, um, there's actually, you know, lots of crises happening in, in this moment in our history. But before a lot of these erupted, um, it really seems like we're in the era of consent. And, and whether that shows up in, you know, appropriate workplace behavior or, you know, the, the romantic world or even like how we touch people therapeutically, having some kind of clear expectations and consent and, and that leads to enrollment and engagement is like probably the best way to open up a, a nervous system into healing mm. is that not only what we're going to do is okay with you, but you're on board with it. And you'll let me know if that changes. Well, I agree with you. I mean, I think that has been a huge paradigm shift in a, people getting comfortable asking and not just assuming that they can do whatever they want. And then on the other side of it is the, res- the person who's being asked for consent being like, oh, well, I have a voice over my how I should be touched and I get to control and have that authority. And I think that hasn't been so much the case in recent times and that I think there could be a whole bunch of reasons why, but for sure. I mean, I know I, I saw it in the general public and definitely was seeing it greatly in practice that the intake form wasn't just about your general medical well-being. It was also where's your level of consent and I mean, even in, from the days of, I mean, we joke around from early training days, there, there wasn't a Rolf uniform. You showed up in your, your bra and underwear, whatever your, your intimate clothes looked like. And even back in the Esalen days, I mean, there was probably people that weren't really wearing clothes to, you know, when I came back many years to be involved in the, the teacher training program, there was this whole Rolf uniform and, how you how you showed up for sessions and um, so there was this whole level of coverage that I think changed in in the work. The the Esalen days, there's stories of like Rolfers working on each other, or working on their client, and being like, "So after this, you want to go to the hot springs and have sex?" Like that was what was happening at that time um, because that was the time and that was Esalen. So gladly, things have changed a, a bit since then. Yeah, and I, I don't, I don't, I'm not um, old enough to, to have been around for that stuff, and and I'll, I'll take your word for it that that's what was happening. And um, part of me really shudders to think that that was a reality at some point. But that kind of leads me right into um, like what you were saying, Nikki, with what are the expectations around something like clothing? Um, what are the expectations around something like pressure or pain? And 
it's it just reveals to me that when we we look a little more closely at that stuff, whether it's it's clothing or or pressure or pain, anything else we want to have an agreement or or negotiate around as part of the setting up the therapeutic context, is the thing itself isn't necessarily good or bad. It's what it means to the client. Mm-hmm. And how do we know what it means? How do we know what it's like for the client unless we ask? Being in, in say, your traditional Rolf uniform, right, underclothes or whatever, um, that might be some of the most therapeutically beneficial part of someone's series, just to, like, you know, deal with the, the little bit of stress or the lot of bit of stress of being seen and learning to be comfortable, to be received with care and hopefully a non-judgmental and empathic um, way by, by a practitioner, that might be one of the biggest benefits of going through a 10 series for someone that my body is okay. Mm. You know, I'm not going to be ridiculed. I don't have to hide any of that stuff to someone else. It could be way too much of a demand Mm. to be seen in less clothing for someone else, they could be naked and it would never even challenge that, right? So it's, it's less about the elbow, but it's more about what the elbow is like for that person. And how do we ever know if we don't stop and ask? It's really interesting. I, I got an email yesterday out of the blue from someone who wants rolfing from a place I used to work at. And she wants it because she feels she's unattractive. And she wants to change the fascial structures in her face or whatever. And my first response is to be like, the work that I want to do is not change your fascia, but get you to realize you're beautiful as you are, you know, and, and am. And it's something you said really resonated with that is how, to, how because then you have to negotiate. Well, you, you want me to change the tissues, but my viewpoint is, the external and the internal need to to match and the internal for me is so much more important for the external but that's me that's not them so how to have that dialogue and how to have that consent to find that that space i i don't know i, I mean I'm, i won't work with her for a while because i won't be in that area i haven't even fully responded to some of the emails because i don't want to say well you know we need to change her experience or or imply that her view is wrong because her view isn't wrong. Her view is what it is. It's just different than how I see it. And I think it could be expanded. Sounds super rich. Um, yeah. I, I wish we could watch how you do. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot to play with there. And, you know, maybe some of the belief system that you're wanting to work on, maybe, maybe it lays outside of the standards of practice as they're yeah. agreed upon by, by, by your school, by your state, you know, by the agreements you make with your clients, you know, these are all a a little less black and white and a a little more gray. Um, And like, when is it SI and when is it not SI anymore? I mean, those are arbitrary and wise things to heed, but I mean, it's really anybody's guess um, as to when staying with the present experience of your body through language uh, starts to become psychotherapy. Hmm. Yeah, I I don't know what that line is, but what I do have a lot of confidence in is as long as both parties are clear about what to expect and consent to it, probably a lot safer. You know, we, I think we learn very um, 
elemental pieces of this in like the, um, at least the TR, the therapeutic relationship program uh, at the Rolf Institute. I don't know what the, the sort of, you know, the communication or, or client practitioner dynamics or, you know, maybe it's called ethics or something at the different schools are like, but this sort of um, conversational connection, um, which is oftentimes a really important access to what someone's experience is that it's maybe not playing out in the tissue, but it's more an idea or an emotion. And um, again, are, is it psychotherapy? I, if you're, you know, if you're staying with what's current in terms of body sensation, I don't, I don't think it is. Uh, if you're trying to treat disorder, uh, advise or coach, you know, different story, but all these skills kind of point back to the same thing, which is um, how do we track what's happening how do we connect to it? How do we reveal what's happening for us? And how do, how do we stay on the moment-to-moment -moment unfoldment of how it feels to be doing what we're doing right now? And are we on board or do we want to adjust something? Or, you yeah. know, it doesn't, it feels to me complex and, and challenging to talk about it, but when it's happening, it actually winds up feeling pretty easy. And, well, and I that's, think sorry, I was going to say, that's what I hope that same skill set is like, how do we evoke more out of our sessions that, that it's not just limited to, oh, I want your shoulder to go from over here to over there. But what is it like for you to have your shoulder in a new place? What else do you notice? What else might you try tomorrow or this week with your, your, your activities now that this is like this, right? Like all of those other qualitative components. Well, I think we've covered um, a lot of valuable components of structural integration that isn't about leaning into the tissue and creating a specific pressure. And all of these can happen as a result of leaning into the tissue, <laughs> right? Like leaning in, even with a, I mean, my sessions are probably medium to firm most of the time in terms of pressure, uh, but I see the pressure not as the the end, but it's a means to unpacking an experience. Right. I think that this conversation has been really great to illuminate that the different inquiries and processes that come out of a session. And I think it, I hope it's helpful for any listeners that are still only knowing that structural integration looks a very specific way, a historical mm -hmm. reputation way, and that there's a lot more to it than what is generally well known. Michael, do you have a you have a website or like where people listening can find more information about you? Uh, my website really just serves as a uh, very mildly and boring, um, mildly interactive and, and boring interface, almost like a digital business card for for my practice. So, um, no is the answer to that question. Uh, you'll find out about how I work and you know what my email address is and all that stuff. Um, the thing that I feel the most excited about that I have put out recently, uh, and it's soon to be published. Uh, I think the book ought to be available pretty soon here, uh, is that I collaborated with uh, Dan Akins, another SI practitioner, and he and I co-authored a chapter for David Lazondek's oh, wow. book. Congrats. Um, thank you. Um, I think... It's, I thought it was end of July, maybe August, somewhere in that neighborhood about when uh, Dave's book will be published, but it is 
um, as far as I know, it's one of the most uh, research cited uh, pieces on what SI is, how it works, and for whom it's beneficial. Um, the bibliography in the chapter alone, I think, has about 20 or so citations, all of which are interesting reads in and of themselves. And um, what I love about it is that while it's for a medical textbook on fascia, uh, we really don't look in the article too deeply into what's happening in the fascia, but what's happening in the lived experience when we intervene with touch, movement, and embodiment approaches. So that's a really cool launching point, um, and it ought to be published and available pretty soon. Cool. Great. Thank you so much for taking time with us. Of course. Yeah, I, really I, wish, I wish we had uh, more, more of these, and uh, I know you're putting a lot of really um, interesting and exciting voices out there, so kudos to you two for for launching something that seems like it's been a need. Thanks for listening to us at Touching Into Presence. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. You can find out more about Michael at rolfingdenver.com. Please feel free to leave us positive reviews on your favorite podcast aggregators, and please share us with people who may be interested. We do this for all of you out there and hope we're making a difference in your world. We look forward to hearing back from you seeing you on our next episode of Touching into Presence. Bye-bye.